there's this kind of time warp that happens where time starts to get slower if something annoying is happening. Is that just me? We're all on board here? So I can be very comfortably sitting in a doctor's office, waiting room, real small, like drum set to the wall, real small, very comfortable, just waiting, shoulder to shoulder with people, but we're just waiting. And then someone's cell phone can ring, and someone can pick it up and proceed to talk very loudly in the room. And one second went from feeling like one second to like five seconds, right? Um, And she was speaking in a language I didn't understand, which I don't know why, but it made me that much more upset. I was like, I couldn't imagine her conversation, right? I couldn't like even listen in on what she was doing to impose on my like private time. Um, Time has this ability to kind of warp. I think we've all seen this. Um, Time goes fast at certain areas and events during our life. And then sometimes time crawls and one second feels like a thousand days. Um, Most of you know I had a seizure a few weeks ago, and one of the um, outcomes of that, one of the protocols for that is that I'm not allowed to drive for six months. And so uh, if you know me, you know that I like to be independent, and I like to be able to go where I want to go. And um, you would know that being told that is very bad news. And so I hear that six months of no driving. I'm like, what, 30 years? Right? Because I know immediately this is going to feel like forever. Um, this is not going to just be a system thing in my mind and in my heart. And, uh, you know, you, you, you get into these situations where something annoying is happening or where you're distracted or where you are starting to suffer. Um, you are starting to, to kind of have something hard happen in your lifestyle. And as Christians, it's important that we are equipped to react in the right way. It's important that we know how to react um, when we're faced with suffering that maybe makes time slow down or maybe makes time speed up. How do we react? Um, and so this morning in James, uh, this is going to be the topic of our passage. If you will flip with me to James chapter 5, we are zeroing in on the end of our sermon series on the book of James. We've just got two weeks left, James 5. We'll be reading this morning 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12 in James 5. Um, And James is going to address, if you'll remember, last week James was talking to a group of people who are suffering under wealthy people taking advantage of them. And now he's going to address how they should respond. How should a Christian respond to a time of suffering? Here's what he says, James 5, 7. Be patient. Right off the bat, I don't like it. (laughs) Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, or behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. 
And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and is merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, he responds and and tells these Christians who are experiencing this difficult time, and and probably a day feels like a thousand years to them, and they're probably wondering, when is this ever going to be right? Um, Where they're just miserable, and he says, be patient. Be patient. As, as, As part of a mature life of following Jesus, we've got to develop the, the ability and the skill of patience. Christians are called to be a patient people, even during times of suffering, and I would say maybe even especially during times of suffering. Often, if things are going well, there's really not a need to be patient. You're more like, let's slow this down. This is a sweet spot right here. But especially during suffering, we need to be patient. Um, because if, if, if in suffering we start to crumble, um, what happens is we start fighting with each other, right? So our community breaks apart, our relationships, our church community, and then eventually we start fighting with people outside. We lose our perspective of all things, right? We, we just become so me-centered, so my problem-centered, and so patience is required, to follow Jesus, particularly, especially during suffering. Now, patience is not popular in our world. I can remember, I'm not old, like you needed to be told that. I can remember being a little boy and having a conversation that ended without an answer to a question. Here's an example. Hey. Hey, Mike. How many... Who's, what baseball player in history has hit the most doubles ever in the history of Major League? I don't know. Okay. Conversation over, right? Unless someone either knew the answer or there was a library nearby, there was no way for you to, to figure it out. You'd have to go searching or write it down and look it up later, that kind of thing. Um, fast forward now to today, right? We don't have conversations or um, we don't have to have conversations that don't end with answers, right? Now, if I want to find out who that person is, I don't even know, but I could get my phone and in three seconds have the answer. Um, we have made life so streamlined and so efficient, um, starting, you know, think of microwave dinners, fast food. Um, think even um, the way we do church has has gotten faster, right? You look back in history, services were longer, people were more involved during the week, um, but life just keeps getting faster. And as it gets faster, we use all of our technology and money to make it more efficient and more convenient so that we don't have to experience this kind of angst, this kind of impatience. But it has this reverse effect. What it's done is it's made us even more impatient, So now, I think, because I have the ability to find that answer, if the page isn't loading because someone's Wi-Fi is not up to date, I get so mad. If it takes seven seconds to load that video, right? And you go back to 14-year-old me, and I'm sitting there for three hours waiting for a movie to download on (laughs) AOL.com. 
right? I mean, the more streamlined we've done it, almost the worse it's gotten, the more impatient we've become. Um, and it's not just a problem for us. It was even a problem here in the first century. Um, and so it's, it's, it's important for us. We're called to, I think, uh, practice the gift of patience. You'll know if, if you know the fruit of the Spirit. Um, these are character traits that are supposed to be displayed by those who are following Jesus and who are gifted with the presence of the Holy Spirit. One of them is patience. Patience is a gift. Patience is something the Spirit does inside of us. Patience is not something that we're able to produce on our own, but instead, in working with the Spirit, we become more Christ-like as we become patient. Um, So what James does in this passage, if you look at the kind of structure and how it's set up, is he gives us a motivation for being patient. He gives us one motivation, and then he gives us a path to patience. He gives us um, some kind of on-the-ground things to do to become more patient. And then along the way, we'll see he gives us three illustrations, three examples of people who were patient, the farmers, the prophets, and Job. Um, he, he gives us examples of people who are faithful through hard times and develop this kind of patience that we're looking after. So we'll start with the motivation for patience, okay? It's right here at the beginning of the passage. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he talks about the farmer, and then in verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, the early Christians were captivated. Their hearts and imaginations were fueled by this belief that any day Jesus who had ascended physically into heaven, he was gone, he was not presently with them, he was with them through the form of the Spirit, he would actually come back and be with them. And it was going to be soon. Soon enough that we know early Christians quit their jobs. Right? Any day, he's coming back. And then you can watch how the theology develops throughout the New Testament. So Paul will write, hey, he's coming really fast, you better get ready and then a few years later, Paul would be like, okay, we might need to plan on if this takes longer than we thought. Up to 2,000 years later, right? And Jesus still hasn't come back. We're still waiting for this. But the, the belief was this. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to be with us. We're not going to be in a Bible study talking about Jesus. We're going to be in a Bible study with Jesus, right? I mean, he's going to be here with us. Our king is going to come back. And he's going to make everything right. There's going to be a judgment. Everything will be held accountable. Everything that's been wronged is going to be overturned. All things will be made new. In Revelation, he's going to make even a new earth. And there's going to be no sickness and no pain and no tears and no death. And everything is new. And everyone who's ever been sick or is sick right now, And everyone who has felt pain or is feeling pain right now, and everyone who's cried or is crying right now, everyone who's experienced death or is experiencing it right now, all long for that day. And want to grab it with your hand in the future. And that was what motivated the early Christians. 
you can see how that would motivate you, right? If you really thought it was imminent at any time, it would kind of shape your life. You'd maybe be a little more focused in how you follow Jesus. You'd be a little, little more focused in how you use your time and your skills and your finances and um, the relationships that you had around you. Now, it's taken much longer than the early Christians thought. Um, but as we know, time warps. Time can play games. The older I get, the more it seems to go like this. Slow days and then fast years. So the day is pretty slow. Lots of things to do. I'll never accomplish all of this. And then it's 2006? Because I'm writing 08 still on stuff when I'm signing it. Like, where did those years go? And the years just fly by. And so we, you know, in, in one lifetime experience how fast time can go by. Imagine stepping outside of that and looking at it from an eternal per- perspective, right? I mean, 2,000 years might not be a very long time. That might be in the blink of an eye. I've said it, I think, a couple weeks ago or last week. For all we know, we're still the early church. I mean, we, we might be the ones they look back at and they're like, how cute. They're, they're kind of understanding some things. But it was this motivation, this, this truth, this promise, this hope, and in this knowledge that it could happen at any time, that motivated or should motivate, James says, Christians to be patient. Be patient because it will all be changed. Any day now, the king is going to show up. Any day now, all of our hopes and our dreams will be overwhelmed with so much goodness and grace and joy and peace that it'll be hard for us to even imagine the sufferings and distractions and the pain that we're experiencing right now. You'll see in, in all three examples, so he starts with the farmer. Um, he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Um, James here is echoing Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, where God promises the Israelites, every year I'll send you rain at least twice a year. In autumn and in spring, the early rains and the later rains. And if you've ever farmed or you're a farmer or that kind of thing, you're a green thumb, you know that a large part of producing plants, vegetables, is out of your control. You kind of do what you can do and do your best, and then you sit back and watch and hope and pray. And imagine if your whole life depended on whether the rain would come and the crop would grow. You'd take that promise pretty seriously. We need that rain to come. But there'd be lots of patience There'd be lots of waiting. There'd be lots of trusting in God's promise. And at the end of it, notice, as we'll see in all three examples, there's a blessing, a reward at the end. God's promise comes true, and you receive the fruit. You receive the, in Deuteronomy, the wine and the oil and the wheat that will satisfy you and and satisfy the people around you. He says, consider the prophets. And he might be talking about the prophets we have in the Old Testament. He might be talking about some of the other prophets who aren't in the Old Testament, who the early Christians still considered to be powerful men of the Lord. He says, look at their lives. See how, see how that worked out for them. I think of Jeremiah when I think of 
this example of patience in a prophet. Jeremiah preached for years and years and years and only ever convinced one person of his message. And it was his assistant. Like, I don't think that counts, right? If the attendance is one, but I pay that person, I don't think I put that on the attendance form, right? Every time he speaks, he gets beat up and put in a ditch. And he wrestles and he suffers and he cries out to God. He wants to stop so badly, but he says, if I stopped, like a fire would burst out in my heart. Like I just can't stop doing this, even though I so desperately want to. And so he patiently waits it out, and he dies thinking he's one of the biggest failures that's ever lived on this earth. And now look a few thousand years forward, and look at how we sit around talking about him and consider him blessed. See him as an example for us. Know that he's in the presence of the one he served. While he didn't perhaps receive the rewards in his lifetime, he now enjoys the presence of Christ. So you got the prophets. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And then he talks about Job. He says, you remember Job? It's an Old Testament book. A man basically loses all of his land, all of his family, all of his wealth. And he, he argues back and forth. He's innocent. He, he really is innocent. He argues back and forth with his friends about why all the suffering has come. He argues back and forth with God about why all the suffering has come. And at the very end of it, he is rewarded for being steadfast, for being, steadfast, for being faithful through this, this long period of suffering. He, he gets a new wife. He gets more kids than he had before. He gets more land and wealth than he had before. Now, it's an interesting conversation. I know a lot of people who think that ending is kind of not satisfying, right? Like if your kids died, would getting five more of them 30 years from now, like, would you think that would balance the scale? Okay, yeah, that's, that's fine what happened back then, right? The point still remains, though, God was faithful. He saw Job through the suffering, and then he opened the floodgates of mercy and joy, a picture of what will happen to us when Christ returns. In all of these examples, there's a purpose. God's at work. There's a blessing coming our way. And so Job says, be patient. Be patient. And when we think about patience, we often think of patience as this like very passive thing, like almost a stoic philosopher, we just sit there and nothing bothers us. We're very Zen, Phil Jackson, okay? And, and we're patient. But in the scriptures, and even here in, in, in James, patience is, is something that you do actively. Patience is something you can pursue. Patience is something you can work your way up to. Patience is something that you can set yourself up for. You can exercise your patient muscles, so that when the time hits, you'll be able to experience more patience than perhaps you would have thought. James gave us the motivation for patience, Jesus' second coming. And then James gives us the path for patience. If you look in verse 8, he says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts. There's two commands in the passage, two actual imperatives. Be patient at the start of verse 7, and then establish 
your hearts. This is an active thing. This is something that we can all be doing right now, kind of getting the house ready for the attack, right? Kind of getting our minds ready for the moment when we'll need to tap into that reservoir of patience. Um, it's translated in different ways and in different translations. So this is the ESV, establish your hearts. I think that's kind of an ambiguous, vague phrase. What does it mean to establish your hearts? Um, the NIV says stand firm. The New Living Translation says take courage. The idea here is fortifying yourself for whatever might be ahead in the future. And one of the ways he says to establish yourself is he talks about speech. He says, don't grumble and don't lie. And a lot of people have looked at this passage and wondered, you know, what is the connection here? He's talking about patience, and then he talks about grumbling. He's talking about patience, and then he's talking about taking oaths. Like, is there any connection here at all? A lot of people said, maybe this was just a mistake. Like, a verse accidentally dropped in here while they were copying it. I don't think so, though, because... I know when I get impatient, one of the first things to go is my language. Like if I'm impatient about something, my voice starts to get a little bit deeper and starts to get raised. I want to talk to your manager now. If I'm impatient, I start to be quicker to blame other people, to create conflict. If I'm impatient, I'm more likely to lie to desperately try to, to walk that balance where I can ease the situation so that I'll be a little more comfortable, even though maybe things aren't entirely true. So he says, establish your hearts here. Stand firm, take courage. One, by controlling your tongue. Remember for James, this is so important. He says, the tongue, man, that will destroy everything or it will guide you to Jesus. If you can master that, you've got everything controlled. In chapter 1, he says, be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Be slow to become angry. So he says, first, be patient with one another. Don't grumble with one another. Don't let the sufferings that you're experiencing break the relationships that you have, whether with family friends, the church, right? I mean, think about how, how negative the consequences are if, if suffering comes our way and the church, as a local church or the church as a whole, just starts defeating themselves. I mean, we have no shot if we don't have each other, if we can't stay in, in unity, if we can't control our, our tongues. And he says, let your word be true, be patient with one another. Don't grumble. Don't blame people for stuff. And then let your word be true. And, and this is a very interesting verse in 12. Above all, my brothers. I mean, that phrase itself is very interesting. But above all, it's the only time you see it in James. Does James really want us to think that verse 12 is the most important thing he says in his book? I know I've said a lot of cool stuff, but above everything else, don't take an oath. If you can remember one thing, don't do that. This is above all else, don't swear. He's not talking about like bad words here. He's talking about like making a promise or an oath, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
The idea is behind an oath, which was practiced in ancient times, still practiced pretty widely today, um, is that you can, with certain promises, invoke more weight on your word, right? On the life of my first child, I promise you this is true. Or you can invoke God himself. I swear to God, this is the truth. In fact, our legal system knows how much liars y'all are. Do they make you swear to God before they get an official statement from you? Just on the off chance that you have some sort of conscience, conscience, right? That you have some sort of like, maybe I shouldn't do this now that I've got God in the picture, the hand was on the Bible. This is all getting a little bit more serious than I thought. But James says, no, don't make these promises. Don't invoke other people or other things. Don't bring God into the equation. He says, just tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, This parallels with Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 34. I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Either by heaven, it's the throne of God, or by earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now, there are some groups throughout Christian history who have taken this very literally. Even today, Quakers and Anabaptists um, refuse to participate if they were called into a courtroom, right? They would say, Jesus told me not to do this. You might think it's silly, but he told me to, so I'm not going to. Um, That's a different discussion for a different time. Um, It's easy, though, to get the real message of this teaching lost by looking at those kind of um, external kind of features and, and applications. When Jesus says, by the way, Matthew 5 is written after James is written. Remember this? James is one of our first Christian texts ever, written in the 40s. Matthew's written conservatively in the 50s AD, and then some people say up until 60, 70, 80 AD. Um, So James isn't reading Matthew here or hearing stories from people who know about Matthew and have read Matthew. This is actually the first time in history someone stands up and repeats Jesus' teachings about this. And it's almost word for word. Don't bring the earth into it. Don't bring heaven into it. Don't bring God into it. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Here's, here's the, the kind of inherent meaning of that teaching, that command. Anytime you make a promise, you are implicitly stating that unless you say, I promise, there's a slight chance I'm telling a lie. If you told the truth 100% of the time, you would never need to say, I promise. Like, hey, seriously, dude, I swear. Like, this is really what happened. Right? When you do that, I mean, implicitly, no one will ever say this, but implicitly you're saying, yeah, most of the other time, a lot of that's garbage. (laughs) Sometimes I lie a lot. You know, like a liar. (laughs) I mean, the moment you have to bring in an oath or a promise is the moment that James said, you've already, I mean, you've lost the battle. The battle's before that. You should be a group of people, individuals who are so truthful. 
in both good and bad things. Being truthful can create conflict. But you should be, a group of people are so truthful, your yes is your yes and your no is your no. And he says, you start playing games beyond that and it's just, it's just from the enemy. It just doesn't get, doesn't get good. It doesn't get better than that. The community starts to break up. Your speech goes downhill. We know James thinks if we lose control of our tongue, the whole world is going to be set on fire. So he says, don't turn on each other. That's a way we can stand firm, establish our hearts. Being patient with one another, letting our word be true. And then two, he says, don't lose perspective. Know who God is. He says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you're into stuff like this, James makes up that word for compassionate. It's not in the rest of the New Testament in Greek. It's not in any other text we have from that time period in Greek. Um, he takes the word for compassion and he adds the prefix poly, which means much, many, a lot. Just like lots of compassion, overflowing compassion. If, if you really were to focus in on the character of God, I think you would be able to patiently suffer through hardships and, and anticipate the Lord's coming, anticipate his blessing and reward. You would also see how he's working in our lives and in the world. We all, I think, have experienced times of trial where when we look back five years later, we see that God was doing something in our hearts and in our minds. He was preparing us for something else, or he taught us an important lesson. And we know beyond all of that, God's purpose and blessing will be complete with the new creation with eternity, with our Lord. And when you, when you have that perspective, because what happens when you're suffering is sometimes you can become so focused in on your problems that you lose these, these vital perspectives and it's this downward spiral that leads to grumbling, lying, not building your relationship with Christ, he says, instead, keep your perspective. Look at the purpose of the Lord. Look at how he's working through everything. Look at what the final result's going to be. And he says, look at his heart. He is himself compassionate and merciful. So for some people here, this might be a word needed for some future moment. Like things might be good right now for the most part, and, and maybe in a month or two months or a year, something maybe bad will take place, and, and you might remember, James 5, I need to go read that. Okay, be patient through the suffering. But for some of us this morning, I know this, this is right now. I mean, we, we may not be getting killed by rich people, but we are struggling and overwhelmed enough that we perhaps are not following Christ as faithfully as we'd like to, as we're called to. And so is this not, this passage this morning, a gift from God, an invitation into life? I can tell you this, I'd much rather not be impatient. It's a better life. I'm more joyful if I'm not impatient. I'm more peaceful if I'm not impatient. Like all of God's promises, it's not meant to take life from us. 
like all of God's commands, it's, it's meant to give us life. I mean, if we are able to be a person who is patient through suffering like this, that's a much freer life. That's a much more bold life. That's a much more adventurous, dare I say, fun life. And so three applications as we close out this morning. Three things maybe we can do. The first one is ask ourselves some questions. So when you're going through suffering, ask, what, what is God accomplishing? Or what could God accomplish during this, during this event or moment? So I've got my months I can't drive, right? And I can, there's two ways I can use that time. I can use it to spiral down into a more immature Christian and waste the six months. Or I can think through, like, okay, I don't like it, but what are some things God could do through this time? What are some things I can learn? What are some ways that I can come out on the other end more mature and more able to follow Christ? Like James says in chapter 1, consider joy when you suffer because you're going to become this like mature, robust Christ follower if you endure. So you ask God, what, what's happening in my life, in my heart? What can you accomplish during this suffering? Even though at times it seems overwhelming, at times it seems like nothing good can come out of it. What are you calling me to do? What, what actions are you calling me to take place? So we ask questions and then focus. I think when you're in suffering, you've got to focus on God's character, his compassion and love. You've got to focus on who he is and who we are, on our identity. And then you've got to have perspective, right? I mean, you, you can't ever let that slip away perspective of the future, what's coming. I mean, history is linear, according to Christians. There is a, a future date with the stake in the ground where Jesus comes back. That should inform our suffering. That should create a patient people. And then lastly, we ask questions, we focus and have perspective. Lastly, we have hope. We hold on to desperately the hope of redemption the hope of new creation, the hope of Jesus' second coming. Um, I forget who said it, but um, there's no more powerful thing than a human who has hope. A human with hope can endure almost anything. Once you lose hope, though, it's hard to keep going. If you have hope, that God's promises will be true, that the rain will come, that the fruit will grow, that Jesus will return, that all of God's gifts and, and promises to me will be fulfilled. Then maybe, yeah, I can put on my shoes tomorrow. I can get up and I can go do what God has called me to do. And maybe, just maybe, I'll actually be better off after what is really a horrific experience. Maybe I'll become a, a patient person, and you and I can become a patient people. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for um, the ability we have to discuss the scriptures that you have given us. I thank you for scriptures like James. I thank you for reminders um, of of how we should live and, and for tips 
I mean, following Jesus, following your son is, is a difficult thing. And we're so easily distracted and easily pushed off the path. And so I'm, I'm so thankful for the commands to be patient, for the, the reasons why we can be patient, for examples of patience. Um, and I pray that um, on everybody in here, in our church family, you know, they're not present with us right now, um, that you would hedge them with your spirit, that you would um, pour patience into their heart as a gift, um, that they might endure and endure well. Um, and like all things, our, our ultimate hope, Father, is to be formed into the image of your Son, so we might love you and be loved by you more and more and more. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We'll now participate in communion. We do this every Sunday at First Colony Christian Church. And so if you're a guest with us, um, we practice open communion, which means that all are invited to the table. Um, so after we pray, you are um, more than welcome to come join us as we worship um, the one that we follow and the one that we wait to return. As we come to the table, we're, we're intentionally focused and, and grateful for the triune God, for the the Father and for the Son and for the Holy Spirit. And we're grateful for the forgiveness of our sins that we receive through Jesus' death. And we're grateful for the victory over death that we receive through Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And we're grateful for the hope that we have that one day through His Spirit, all things will be made new, will be made right. We pray for us. Help us to be patient in our suffering, as James reminds, accepting, helping, and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, as Jesus taught us. Help us to recognize the Holy Spirit at work in our lives every day, and help us to join in the Spirit's work. These things we ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat in the upper room with his disciples eating the Passover meal. And at, at some point during the meal, he took the bread and he broke it and blessed it, giving thanks for it. And he said, as often as you, my followers, eat this bread, you remember me. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, as often as you drink this cup, this cup that's the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, as often as you drink of it, you remember me as well. And so... We come to the table. One of the reasons we practice communion is because we're waiting for our Lord. Jesus says he's not going to eat at the table until he's with us. And so we eat in anticipation of the time when we will feast with him. As we come to remember and to worship, to celebrate the one who gave his life so that we might have life.
you are invited. Please come.